No. Yes. That's not the game. That's try terrible. it. No. Just try I'm not it. That's no. In that. That's no, not the game. I'm no. serious. Now, now you're trying to flip the script. That's it's not a no. Game. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Irenicast. I'm your host Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law Alan and his cousin Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we are going to be talking about atonement. And honestly, I don't know how we've gone this long as three post-evangelicals not talking about this particular (laughs) issue. Well, I think it's first because we want to do it justice. And second of all, it's because every time I hear the word atonement, granted, I've studied theology for a very long time. Every time I hear the word, I just think of guys in cloaks singing, Omnus Deus Christus Morti. And then hitting themselves in the face with a plank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Atonement. Monty Python. Wonderful skit. <laughs> yes. Part of the reason we haven't talked about this is because it is kind of such a big deal, actually. Because we've we've come from a place where uh, this is the defining question to a place where we're a little bit different and probably disagree between us three. And so it's been much more comfortable to talk about other stuff and... I've been really excited to speak about this. So, Gosh, I hope we disagree. Because actually we get feedback <laughs> a lot that we don't disagree enough. And yeah. so we're going to throw freaking down today. Throw down. Throw it down. All right. Well, before we throw down, let's <laughs> let's define this. What do we mean by atonement? Because I, think, I sure. think our guiding question is basically what we're saying is why did or did at all Jesus' death matter? Yes. Right? That's mm. kind of what we're answering. Yeah, yeah this is an important conversation because Jesus's death on a cross being crucified is one of the two historically verifiable pieces of his life. All of the stuff that we have from the Bible, we really take on faith. Uh, I think that there are some historically verifiable stuff in there, but I would say everyone agrees that Jesus lived and that Jesus was crucified or executed. And the meaning of his execution determines all kinds of stuff. Like what you think about Jesus's death determines like what you think about God and what you think about yourself or the Bible in general. And for billions of people on this planet, uh, the cross and Jesus being executed is a central part of their worship experience or their look on the world. They put crosses on their churches or they wear them um, or they draw them. (laughs) And uh, this is just an important question. And so the, the idea that God was doing something in Jesus's death is the next step. I can't, I don't think anyone can argue with like whether it's an important question or not, but the question really is, is there a divine purpose for Jesus's death? Yes or no. And I would say from the very beginning, people have different answers. Um, Some would say that there's only one, but there's a lot of answers to that question. And there are a lot of people who would be on the no side, which, yes, I think is a definitively religious faith-based answer, right? You could argue um, that you're drawing any kind of mystical meaning from it. But on the no side, I think a lot of people who are on the yes side are like, well, you guys aren't religious. You guys aren't people of faith. But there's a lot of people who've been on the no side who are who still very much consider themselves religious and faith-filled and even mystical people. So that Christians. or there, are Christian, there are Christians who yeah. see divine purpose for every for lots of things that are happening in Jesus's life or maybe his teachings or but to say that there is a div- divine purpose in the death of Jesus, you're right, not everybody says that. 
but they could still be people of faith. And so that's yes. very important to note. Because I grew up with a lot of that. Like, well, if you don't believe Jesus' death did anything, then you are absolutely not a Christian. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, historically, that's not very accurate. Uh, with people who like self-identify as Christians, we could say, right? Yeah. Well, there's always been the ins and outs, right? Heretics. Orthodox. Heretics. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, don't, this- I don't know if this is splitting hairs, but I think that there is a middle ground in the sense that it may be that it wasn't a divine purpose that Jesus died, but does a divine purpose came from the death of Jesus. Oh, that that's, that's an important nuance. And that's something that people would tease out. Okay. So what does the word atonement mean? Let's start with I, that. I kind of like what, 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 where Jeff was going with that. That's just another option about, but before we tease it all out, the, uh, the idea that God is reacting in certain scenarios, like open theism or process theology, maybe um, probably more open theism. That's the idea that God is, you know, in control and stuff, but God doesn't determine the future. In that kind of a construction, I could see Jesus's death being something God has used, but not something that God, you know, had purpose for. I don't purposefully, I don't personally hold that there's no divine purpose in, in Jesus's death. I do think that there is. But I can see where where that would go there. Anyway, so the atonement. Atonement is the the theological term for righting wrongs, like a reparation for a wrong or uh, expiation for sin. Basically, the wrongdoing of a person, how that is undone. And especially in theological contexts, how humans are reconciled to God. Because in... In Christian context, there are things that people do that are not connected with God, whether you call it sin or something else. And how is that reconciled? And traditionally, the death of Jesus is what reconciles people to God. And so therefore, the atonement is the term that kind of talks about all of the significance of Jesus's death, whether someone holds to one definition or another. So, well, before we, heard- before we move too far into it, I just want to make our listeners aware that we have talked about sin at length. Um, so you can check that out in the show notes. We'll put a link to that episode because I think that really goes through. If we're talking about redeeming from something, we're talking about mm-hmm. sin, and we've we've defined kind of where we stand with that. So I'll put that in the show notes, which is different places. So <laughs> yes, very much so. Which probably won't be very different here either. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people define atonement as at one mint, which they always like act like they are very clever like mm. they're the one to come up with that yes, <laughs> yes at those. one minute with god being <laughs> brought back together with god well okay my, but my like skeptical mind the first thing i think of is like why do we need to make wrongs right that sounds really messed up like if somebody does something wrong why don't we just call you it of all people it <laughs> you of all people well you have to make you don't have to make amends for the things that you've done to to make it right but you don't to make it right okay but you don't make the th- the wrong thing good. You make up for the wrong thing that you have done and make amends for it. But you don't make it weirdly good. And I say this for a very specific reason is because some conceptions of atonement has been have been criticized as redemptive suffering. And this is a term that comes mm-hmm. out of womanist theology that makes suffering somehow good somehow something god wants from either jesus or from us that like kind of that atones through um punishment punishment yeah Yeah. and 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 horror and i think that has um that has come under heavy fire in the last few decades 
from certain groups of theologians who say that's incredibly destructive way to think about God, that God would ever want people to suffer for the greater good or for some kind of like divine will because um, God wants that from us, if that makes sense. So writing wrongs is complicated, right? Yes. You just said, and in a roundabout way, you were actually talking about a very well-traversed path in Christian theology, I think. So there, there's, from the very beginning, like I said, a lot of different opinions and throughout church history. One of the ones you just touched on was not making the bad thing good or whatever, but actually like addressing it in a different way. And from the early, from the second century uh, it, with Irenaeus, there is an idea that Jesus's life itself is what is really the atonement and hit the, the significance of his life and death are that he lived a life that was such a way it was the way that God created human life to be. So he reverses disobedience with his obedience. He reverses dishonor with his honor or he restores humanity to humans. He basically did it right. And so that's why he lived the way he did and he was executed. But in all of that, he like relives human life and restores it in a positive way. And that's been around for you know 1800 years. Well, I would say that that's true at least from some of the gospel writers, I would say that that's how they framed their gospel. No, whether that was the actual intent of it, but you have that, you have, you have that idea even replicated in the, the gospel's account of uh, Jesus going to the wilderness after he was baptized. Like it follows this train of all the, all the temptations that Satan presents before Jesus are representative of failures of, of Israel in the wilderness. So the way they even frame some of the stories in the gospel perpetuate that idea of that the old stories are being redeemed and Jesus is Jesus himself is doing it. Like fulfillment of the law and whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's made explicit in Paul when he talks about Jesus being the second Adam, right? Like Adam was a meta was, was this shadow that, Jesus is the the second person to relive Adam's life and basically reco- recapitulated is the is the term but that's just one theory among many others about the significance of Jesus's death connected with his life uh, one of the oldest is the ransom theory and that is that um, in Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10 there's a line where Jesus is talking about his death that is impending and he says his he will be a ransom for many. And the the early church fathers and thinkers and theologians and mothers talked about uh what what it meant for Jesus to be a ransom. And so they they had the idea, many of them, that the ransom was paid to the devil. Did did you guys ever watch uh The Chronicles of Narnia or read The Chronicles of Narnia from C.S. Lewis? Yeah. Okay. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's, I love that book from when I was a little kid. There's yes. a scene where uh, the lion is tied to the altar, right? And mm-hmm. uh, the the payment to the wicked queen The White is, Witch. The White Witch. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the White Witch. Uh, the payment to her is the sacrifice, the blood, right? That's making a payment to the White Witch from, you know, Aslan's giving him, Aslan is giving himself up. Because and, there's a uh, debt that's owed. Yeah. But he ends up tricking her at the darkest moment when all these like evil animals and spirits and stuff are flying around. There's a moment where he tricks her where he comes back to life. And it's a trick of of uh, Aslan that he, yes, fulfilled her requirement, but also rose on the third day, just like Jesus. More of a so loophole. A, yeah, yeah a it's trick. like a loophole. 
So it's yeah, just like a transference so of power. It's like there's mm-hmm. a there's a dominion of power that has authority, and then like the trickstery of Jesus, which um, there's a, there's been a lot written about Jesus as like a jester archetype. That's someone who like upends and yeah. reverses and um, uses comic. Uh, almost comedic puns to uh, upend power structures comes in and saves the day through these sort of tricks. Um, so that's that's really interesting. The, but it, it really comes down to like a math equation, right? Like someone yeah. owes somebody something, somebody pays something else. So like it seems like this very simple like one to one ratio debt has been fulfilled. But then there's this excess, this remainder of something that allows for a new power structure to come into being. Um, you can see that also in the idea of Jesus going into hell and taking the keys of death from Satan. You know, so Satan thought he was defeating Jesus in the crucifixion, mm-hmm. but then Jesus went down and actually stole death itself and the keys to death itself back from the devil, even in that defeat. So the defeat becomes victory. Yeah, and that's not it's not the only understanding in the Bible or in church history of Jesus. It's just one of the oldest. The the concept of tricksterism, this is just an aside, goes way back in antiquity. Like, you know, the in the Hebrew Bible you have Abraham and his sons being these tricksters who, because of their cunning, were able to upend injustice or avoid it or whatever. And so that's definitely a, a part of it. I think the um the thing that bothers me the most about the ransom, they call it the ransom theory of the atonement, is that God's making a payment to Satan is <laughs> kind of suspect for me. Right, that God would owe Satan anything to buy humans back, or that humans were under control of the the control of Satan, uh, theologically doesn't sit with me very well. But it's definitely something that many traditions hold. Here's the thing, though: if you really read the Bible, like really read it, there is so much suspect material in there about the relationship of God and kind of the devil or a devil kind of figure. Like Job is a really good example of this, where. Um, you know, God makes a wager with the devil that Job will turn his back. And so the devil is allowed to test Job um, to the limits of human experience. And even in that book, Job is um, asking God, like, why are you, why is this happening to me? And, and God comes back and says, you know, who made the foundations of the earth? But then at the end of the book, it's kind of left ambiguous whether God actually has power to overcome the devil. Like that's, that's kind of the weird theme of Job um, in, in all of that. So a lot of like modern uh, philosophers and theologians have asked that question. Like do, does the story of the crucifixion actually reveal that God is actually not all powerful? Like we have thought since classical times. Well, I think it's interesting you bring up Job because when I think of the ransom theory, I think that's exactly what I think of in the sense that in in Job, it's a matter of what you've lost, you've gained back. So even down to Job's children, you've lost your children. Oh, but now you have new children, so everything's okay. And I think the, the ransom theory communicates the same thing. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, as long as you know, these people suffer, blah, 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 but these people aren't, so now that makes everything okay. And I think it trivializes humanity. Yeah, it kind of does. Like, you know, <laughs> don't don't worry about your grief for those old kids because, hey, you got new shiny new kids. Yeah, Everything's new ones. fine. <laughs> you know, they're well, not I mean, really come on. Yeah. You got a new I, wife. It's I actually fun. like uh, Kurt Vonnegut is really influential for me for all of this. He was a atheist, humanist. But his whole point was like, you can't glorify human suffering because that glorifies 
something over and above raw humanity and he saw raw humanity as like the the good and uh i think it was him who said being robbed of our suffering is like one of the big problems with religion or society that we take people suffering and just ignore it or whatever the the thing about the ransom theory and job and satan that i i guess would bother me more is that even reading satan back in i this should be said reading satan back into the job story is kind of an anachronism because in job it's just the adversary it's not it's not the the fully developed informed satan that we have you know today it's this person this being who is at God's beck and call, who's being you know sent by God or whatever, and I guess there might be some back and forth there, but the whole conversation of Satan itself should happen at some point because uh, people disagree about exactly what that looks like, where Satan shows up in the Bible, whether Satan exists, and I know that we've had that conversation before. At least oh my Jeff God. and I. I just have to mm-hmm. say a quick word to that, and then we can keep talking about atonement, but it's so much more <laughs> theologically problematic to have an adversary within God like mm. a hidden evil God ki- kind of a figure um, than to externalize Satan and to make him completely oppositional to God. Although you have to say if God made all things then God could also make Satan. So that's a can of worms. I just opened up for everybody's. I benefit. feel like we're building blocks towards our Halloween episode. Talking about <laughs> Satan, right? Yeah. We should do it. Okay. Let me bring it back to grace, though, because if okay, so if we're writing wrongs, to me that that harkens back to a lot of theologies of grace, and I wonder if that's why atonement kind of came to be because we're trying to understand what it means for grace to even exist and mm-hmm. the space between our insufficiencies and God's awesomeness and how to bring those two together and have an an intimacy that can exist between utter finitude and what a lot of people would call lack and maybe even evil or sinfulness and God's beauty and perfection in some renderings of theology, right? So how do you bring those two together? Because, you know, a lot of Old Testament materials dealing with this idea that God cannot coexist with imperfection and unholiness and uh, dirtiness, you know? Um, so, it's interesting you say dirtiness because I've I've read before that some of the earliest religious impulses some psychologists have tied with the desire to be clean. And if you look at like the old Testament law and other stuff uh, from other religions, sorry, the Hebrew Bible law and other religions, you will see that the desire to be clean is you know right next to godliness. Cleansliness is next to godliness. And that's what evolves into concepts of sin and of wrong and things like that. That's I totally agree. Thought, but I totally agree. But, and I think there's, but then there's at the no... same time, there's like, you know, killing people and other stuff so that it's not i guess just trying to be clean from what you've done but i would say that there is wrong you know wrong in the world it just doesn't have an existential reality and this is like the underpinning of the whole conversation is does does sin have this like existential reality that you own that you have to be like it has to be taken away from you or is it something else you know that's a good point. Is cleanliness like having something removed, having dirt removed off of you? Or is it something like having something added to you that mm-hmm. absolves you? Or well, I think you- the problem with atonement in general is that any, if I think the, the problem is if any one person is taking one model or one mode or one metaphor of atonement and applying it to this is what it is. Because I think all of these speak to an element 
of something that is, I think, at its core, mis- mysterious. And I know that that yes. can has a tendency to be a cop out, and you can you can make it so. But I I think for something as big as this and something as central as this, I think there's an element of ransom because it's something that at least during the biblical writer's era that was a little bit more tangible for us it's a little bit less personal but i don't think that there's anything wrong with us beginning to come up with new modes for atonement to begin to speak about what we believe when it comes to this idea of grace or forgiveness or whatever we're attaching to that so you just foreshadowed the way that i'm gonna go at the very end of this conversation and that's that there was so many views represented at the beginning and it's incumbent upon us to honor the fact that there are multiple ways of interpreting Jesus's death and we have different metaphors and to have one controlling metaphor above all others actually does a disservice to the Bible, um, to the Bible itself. You mentioned that the atonement's a mystery and that's actually probably the most important metaphor of all. The early church was grappling with the mystery itself. I mean, Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, and there's these two people talking about his death, and they don't understand it, and other people don't understand it, and it's something that develops over time. Like, what does this mean for the people who are following Jesus and for Christians who believe that there's some sort of operation here that that's going on? And Paul talks about it being a mis- mystery, and the early church fathers talk about being a mystery or even something shameful in the eyes of the rest of the world. Like they have to explain, yeah, you know, Jesus died, was crucified, or the followers of this very wise sage or this very powerful overcomer or Messiah. And you could read the whole gospel, uh, many of the gospel accounts as explaining the shame of the end of Jesus's ministry, explaining why the Messiah had to suffer is like, the whole purpose of Mark and other and, and other parts of the gospel that this mystery has a point is like the metaphor for a lot of the writers. But where you go from there, like we said, ends up in ransom or recapitulation or redemptive um, suffering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so here's a yeah. Here's a few more. Christus Victor is also a really old way to look yeah. at the atonement, and that's that Jesus overcame evil and death in his. In going to the cross, he actually showed real power and that he's freeing humanity from slavery to whether it's, you know, evil or evil powers on the earth or Rome or whatever you want to say. He comes out the victor and he wins over humanity by his actions. And so that's very different than thinking about what we've kind of mentioned before, and that's the substitution theory, the penal substitution theory, like the the justice. Christus Victor's like... Jesus overcame, not Jesus was punished by God so that people would be forgiven. So they're different. Part of the problem that we have also is that the only language that the the gospel writers especially had was Jewish language of the sacrificial system. So even if they were like, we're talking about this idea of mystery and how they're not sure. If you're not sure about something, the only thing you can do to describe it is use language that you know and try to nuance it and use it in a way to explain something you not yet sure about. And I think that that, that's a big hang up for me growing up when it came to all this is because it was about the blood and the sacrifice. And it was all this, this mode of how to appease God. And then also trying to use language, use that very language of like God needs appeasing and sacrifice and then apply it to this thing. That's so different in, in the other way that we communicate it with grace and love and, and acceptance. And to me, it was, it was using almost opposite terms to describe something. 
Yeah, that God's loving and that God needs to punish sin yeah. feels like an opposite. So, Alan, you talked about the C.S. Lewis example uh, earlier about appeasing like an adversary or a devil or a white witch mm-hmm. character like in C.S. Lewis. But there is a whole strain. And I think what I've been exposed to most in atonement theology is what's called satisfaction theory that's attributed to St. Anselm. It's like God is wrathfully angry about evil in the world, like pissed off. And the only way to appease, like you said, the word uh, Jeff appease to appease God is to offer uh, the ultimate sacrifice in Christ, right? And it's Blood interesting. Sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate, like the sacrifice of sacrifices, where Christ took out all the sin of the world. This is probably starting to sound very familiar if you grew up in like Calvinist or mm-hmm. neo Calvinist evangelical or Baptist mm-hmm. circles. Um, God, that Jesus took on the wrath of sin and all the evil and all the guilt and shame of the world and took it into hell and left it there. That's kind of the typical um theology that you might hear jesus was infinite he could take on infinite sins and that's right. why that mattered instead of the other sacrifices of the hebrew bible and that's mm-hmm. why god had to forsake him because god had to turn away from all of the evil that jesus took on on the cross um thus the accounting for the final moments of christ so it's, it i have to say that it's interesting that people have come up with like really incredible uh, viewpoints on this narrative of the simple uh, crucifixion of Jesus to like tease out so many layers of meaning. So I, I mean, but to me, it's interesting that the satisfaction theory in Anselm, so Anselm was in like the middle ages guy. So Anselm had this idea of satisfaction that God's wrath needed to be satisfied, that God, there was this incredibly angry part of God. Abelard came after him pretty soon after and said, no, Jesus' death was an outcome of his utter life of love and peace. And therefore, Jesus, it, we call this the Abelardian theory, the exemplar model or the model of love, that Jesus' life actually mattered more than Jesus' death. Jesus' death was a death of a martyr because he lived a life that was so freaking radical that uh, the powers that be couldn't even handle and had to end him. And that was the crux of the meaning. But and this is my cynical reading of uh, historical uh, power analysis that Anselm's theory of substitutionary atonement actually benefited institutional hierarchical religion a lot more because if you have a simple math equation, you can require that people jump through a lot of hoops to fit into that versus just saying we ought to love each other radically and be radically hospitable. So um, that's a really interesting narrative to read up on. But I think it why one show, survived and why another didn't. Yeah, sort of Abelard thing. got buried in history. He totally got. He buried. did for a lot of other reasons too. But you're right. He was. He had some very unique insights. I think he was at Notre Dame way back in. It's weird to think he was preaching and teaching at a university back in you know 1100s. Is nuts in France um, though, not in. in yes. Okay. So. Notre Dame totally then. Yeah. Notre Dame. Notre, not Notre Dame. Dame. <laughs> the, the, um, the thing about the, you said satisfaction at one point and substitution at another, but that actually illustrates what I was going to say mm. is that Anselm's satisfaction theory is what laid all of the groundwork for what came later. It's you said easy to confuse like, them. Yeah. Well, no, they're, they're basically the same thing. You, you said uh, the people tease out the meanings and make it really specific. Well, when the reformers came along, in the 16th century, they took the thoughts that started with with Anselm and they teased it out further. Not only is God angry at sin and God needs to be satisfied, 
the justice of God has to be satisfied in the sense that blood has to be spilt to actually forgive the sin. And so the substitutionary atonement plays off of satisfaction. And then even further, we're, we're, we're like narrow. It's like a, a, it's like a V, right? You're narrowing in to something called penal substitution. And that's like under the law. And you, you probably heard this before the Romans road, you've broken the law. God can't stand people, you know, the law being broken and must out of his justice be it. I say his because normally that's how you say it. His justice, you kill the the person because they broke the law. So to take your place on the cross to satisfy the justice aspect of God, Jesus was killed so that his justice was satisfied. That's that's the version that the um got solidified in the Reformation and uh, has gone today to be such an important part of American Christianity and a lot of evangelicalism is that God just can't forgive. What it comes down to is God cannot look at sin and just forgive it. There has to be a blood sacrifice. I think and there's I think another that's layer there. Though. Interesting. It's interesting because isn't that exactly what Jesus does in the gospel? Like when you look at it over and over, you see Jesus telling people you're forgiven. <laughs> like right yeah, without yeah. Blood go into spilled. no more yeah and you actually wonder, no you're like, right you know, you're absolutely what? right before he died yeah. mm-hmm. well before we move on real quick i just want to remind the listeners that we're throwing out a lot of theological terms and yes. anytime we do that you can check our show notes for this episode it's irenacast.com slash 59 and we will have links to these terms so you can kind of expand on what they mean if you have a question about that because i think sometimes you f- we forget that we have those resources available and we want to make sure that that no one uh, gets completely lost in this conversation uh, if like anything <laughs> yeah if anything piques your interest there's usually a link in the episode um on the website you can just rabbit trail to all sorts of interesting stuff so and write to us because we get so excited when people write to us <laughs> we honestly do uh, um but i was uh, on top of what you said the the point about you know justice is being maybe mm-hmm. very um an american focus in particular you know after post enlightenment with you know, the work of Locke and whatever um what is really important to keep in mind is that for centuries centuries and centuries christianity in order to make itself a valid religion not today because it's politically offensive but for a very long time was hellbent on proving that Christianity was the fulfillment and the replacement for Judaism. It's called, the word is called supersessionism. And so you have to consider that a lot of these theologies developed in this political milieu that was very anti-Semitic and it was very focused on uh, the Jewish law and replacing or fulfilling the Jewish law in particular. And so when you're reading these uh, ideas of atonement and you know, requirements of blood sacrifice and things like that and how it all relates, you know, to the temple and all these things. Keep in mind that uh, Christians for a long time had a very antagonistic relationship to Judaism and that influenced their theologies. It, yeah. it, I and cannot that's kind of an unfortunate that. heritage of Protestantism, especially like we've, yeah. yeah and it's super that, ironic. It's good to be said. If you dig even deeper into that, and I feel like I can't let it go without doing this. If you read the passages in the New Testament that talk about the law not being the program of God or the program of Jesus, or there's some, you know, grace versus law like butts up against each other, it actually undoes the idea of the very atonement model that those people 
reformers and others have um, espoused. What and that's and what what I mean is, if you look at uh, Hebrews, and there's a really good breakdown of this. Um, Benjamin Corey, Benjamin L. Corey, is this missiologist and theologian who works a lot with like progressive Christianity, and he's actually going to be coming on the show uh, in the, the coming weeks. Yeah, super next excited week, about it. Next week we will have him on the show. <laughs> yeah, and Autumn, I'm going to ask him about his series on atonement because he's he's put one up on his blog, and he has a lot of people interacting who come from evangelical backgrounds but he makes the point in one of these uh it's a post called blood sacrifices uh something blood sacrifices but god didn't even like blood sacrifices and he points out that um in hebrews which is a very popular place to go when you want to talk about jesus being the sacrifice that satisfies stuff uh it actually explicitly says that blood sacrifice itself never worked it never had the power to take away sins. It was only for us and our consciences and not for God. And then goes on to say, quoting Jesus, that uh, these were done according to the law, even though God did not delight in them. So if you're going to go the route of the New Testament and criticize law, like in Hebrews and in other places, it actually totally undoes the idea of sacrifice itself. So it's funny if they would just read a little deeper and we would dig a little deeper into the things that we think support our position or um, it's just funny that historically that yes, you're right. There was anti-Semitism that propped up the ideas that, that people preached, but in the middle of that um, it undoes substitutionary atonement, right? Because Why do Hebrews, we need says, a payment? Why do we yeah, need a yeah, yeah. Is the so question. that's uh, well, going back to what you were saying, Alan, like a, a couple minutes ago, the idea of that God just can't forgive—that's stupid. Like, yeah, yeah. No, if that, you really that, that's, think that's about the that. central. Yeah, that's the central. Yeah. focus. All right, so we're coming to the end of this conversation. I think we can we can easily go round and round about this particular one. So let's let's finish with you personally answering the question: What does Jesus's death mean? I once thought that Jesus's death was a sacrifice and did substitute for me on the cross. And I didn't think about things like in Psalm 51, where God is being, where speaking about God and saying, you don't delight in sacrifices. And in Hosea, you'd rather have mercy, not sacrifice, you know, rather than burnt offerings. The, the whole program of reading the Bible for me was all about there's this transaction that's going to happen. And so everything's either a foreshadow or an explanation of that transaction. And the whole point of existence is to have my sin forgiven by Jesus dying on the cross. Now, when I preach on Palm Sunday or I preach on passion during the passion week, and I talk about Jesus's death and I think about it, it's more of, you could probably call it a Christus Victor model, but the idea that God assumed human violence and radically transformed it. That Jesus took his preaching throughout his life, Matthew 5, you know, and other places, turn the other cheek, uh, go the extra mile, respond to hate with love, overcome evil with good. I do believe the death of Jesus was not a shameful ending of his program, but actually the culmination of it. Because in that, God responds to human violence by doing something good. By laying down his life as a ransom doesn't mean he's taking on all the sins of everybody, but he's paying the payment that we require. We require blood. Rome required blood. And Jesus was like, I will show you what I mean, that I mean what I say. 
and that God means what I say. And so going all the way is transforming our violence and hate and evil, not transforming the violence and hate and evil of God, if that makes any sense. And so that's, I don't know if that's, that was awesome. Makes sense or anything, <laughs> but that's how I feel. <laughs> and yeah. It's not that a payment was- to the devil, you know? And I think it's really important in all of this conversation. Um, for me personally, as a Christian, I do believe that there was a divine purpose in Jesus's death. Um, that's just me personally. I do believe it was a reality, a historical event. You can't just take this and make it mean anything, right? It's a his- has historical context that happened in Judea in the first uh, century. And I think that we have, just by virtue of the Bible we have, we have a mandate. This is really what Joel B. Green talked about in the book, The Four Views on the Atonement. We do have a mandate to embrace the kaleidoscope of the meanings of the atonement. To push one above all others and invalidate all the others is to really invalidate the Bible that we've been given and the tradition we've been given. So that's where so, I'm at. So what's, wait, what's the personal meaning, though, for you, the faith-filled meaning? That's Besides the one that the I historical context. Transforming, transforming our violence. Our, our, our violence. Okay. I think that the only way to... Um, <clears throat> God could have responded to human violence and evil, which I do believe happens. It's not something existential that you can touch, right? But it's, it's something that we do. And I believe God addressed that and transformed it in the death of Jesus. The oppressive system of you know Rome and all those things were shown for what they were. They were unmasked. They were... Uh, brought down from their positions of power and shown for what they were in the killing of Jesus. And so I I think that something happens there. It's not just an accident. There is a divine purpose, but that's the side I err on. That was good. I like that, Alan. And I'm going to say something similar, I suppose, which surprises me because (laughs) you and I disagree a lot, but apparently... Uh, Well, hey, I've changed, okay? We were going to disagree on this at (laughs) one point. We all evolved, right? A couple years ago, maybe, yeah, would have been different. Nobody has to have the answers. I certainly don't. But recently, I heard a story of a woman who was at the final march before the Berlin Wall fell on the East Germany side. So the Berlin Wall, you know, as we all know, is this incredible symbol of oppression and evil. And um, this account was that uh, speaking to the guards after the fact, a lot of people remember the Berlin Wall coming down kind of like by force and Mr. Gorbachev turned on this wall and the political pundits. But what actually happened, according to this woman's account, was that uh, what the, the people of East Berlin and West Berlin at the same time marched on the wall with their children and with candles and with prayers. I'm going to tear up just thinking about this because according to the guards, they expected... Um, grenades and cannons and force, but the, they did not anticipate peace and prayers. And for me, that symbolizes the death of Christ, you know, the, like a lamb to the slaughter, not a sacrificial lamb, but someone who comes in the most vulnerable state to, to expose radical evil for what it is through that utter guys that that utter presentation of peace it's not a guys at all it's the opposite of a guys it's mm-hmm. it's utter exposure it's it's intimacy and so for me the death of christ is is meaningless in a sense of i i don't think that there was some 
like mystical exchange with the devil. But what I do think is that it was an outcome of a life lived in the most utter peace and peace that was so complete and so wholehearted that it actually takes on powerful transcendent qualities, divine qualities, and it, and breaks the divine into the world. So I, I do think it was like meaningful in its meaninglessness that we can't make sense of senseless violence. It just is. It just silent violence and suffering just is. It, it's not sensible. But in that, um, evil can be exposed and we can actually break out of cycles of that violence that will destroy us. Um, and so for me, that really is what it, the hope of the gospel comes down to. It's so interesting how we usually end up, we've been lately ending up in the same place from different routes. It's, <laughs> it's just interesting. What about well, Jeff? You know I love, no, I, what I, I what love if that. I haven't that's ended awesome. up in the same place? Well, what, you know what? what? You're right. I'm speaking too quickly. I just want to say like, I appreciate everything you just said. And I feel like I could sign, you know, sign my name to that. That's, that's awesome. Um, and Jeff is going to be even better, right? You're going to blow me away with what, what you've got. That's well, too much pressure, man. No. I was going to say, Calm holy freaking crap, I agree. <laughs> and right? that's kind of where where I land. But in the sense that I think that all interpretations of the atonement are valid because it's the language people had. Mm. And I think where we are in our culture, I think the reason that we are all landing with this, maybe the power of the atonement is the fact that it reflects the best of the people in that era. Because when, when I think of why did Jesus have to die, I think of Selma. I think of sometimes, not even sometimes, I would say that if you are on the front lines of a nonviolent but very aggressive, because I think sometimes we we associate nonviolence, and we've talked about this before, we associate nonviolence with weakness, but I think there's an aggressiveness in that nonviolence, and that aggressiveness will eventually cause violence to be taken upon you. And that the real strength and power is like, like Mona, what you've been saying and Alan, what you've been saying is when that needless violence is put on display for other people to stop and pause and be like, wait a minute, maybe we need to rethink this whole thing. And I think that that's the power of the cross. And I think that's the legacy of the cross is people, people rejecting violence because I don't know. I think I already said what I was going to say. Rejecting violence as opposed to glorifying it and saying yeah, it's but, necessary. but sometimes rejecting it by being a victim, not that it's necessary, but that it may be inevitable if we're talking about sin systems, if we want to use that word. That's, that, that's really interesting. To overcome it, to uh, overcome yeah. it, not just resist it, but to like offer something. Beyond. Because I a think we have way. a tendency. Yeah. In our yeah, a third way, I think in our brain, we have a tendency if we're, if we're disconnected from something, it's easy for us to, to throw it. Like when I look at my Facebook feed, sometimes it is amazing to me how some people are so quick to be like, if someone comes into my house, I'm going to shoot them because they're so disconnected from the actual violence. However, I think if they actually had experience and saw that violence, it would be a lot more transforming for them towards nonviolence than anything else. And I think that's what the cross mm-hmm. does. I, I, I think someone can hear what you just said, especially at the very beginning, Jeff, when you said <laughs> you just like nailed something that I, I wanted to say at some point, And I to do feel cross. very deeply <laughs> not to the cross. Wow. That's a really <laughs> unfortunate. Uh, there, <laughs> that's someone unfortunate, had to make a joke uh, at some point. You, you said that uh, the different metaphors and the different understandings of Jesus's death reflect the people. Unless you think that that's just a, a very subjective definition of Jesus and it's just going with the culture or whatever that actually happened from the beginning. 
And if you look at the Bible and you read the different texts in the Bible, not like it's all one thing, but these are actually different voices. And instead of taking the understanding from one and shoving it into the other, when you read through it, you will see different understandings of Jesus's death. And uh, if you do get really interested, read the book by Joel B. Green is one of the people who put it together. The four views on the atonement. That's his point at the end is that it was a historical event, but it has different meaning for different people. And that's how it's been from the very beginning. And that's, that's how it should be. I would also recommend just to throw a book title out there is that these conversations, believe it or not, are actually happening in happening in evangelical circles, maybe not American evangelical circles, but I would recommend a book called the atonement debate. And it basically describes uh, the evangelical Alliance in the UK starting to have these conversations as a result of a book written by a guy named Chalk and another guy by name man called The Lost Message of Jesus, where it's evangelicals challenging the idea of uh, specifically penal substitution, that it's basically a divine form of child abuse. Hmm. So I would encourage wow. you to check that out as well. And we didn't it's, even jump into the, the end of these things. We We talked about kind of why, how they came up, how we feel about them, but like this is maybe a conversation for a different time, but what does all of this lead us to actually do in our lives and the way we look at God or look at ourselves? You know, that's our soteriology episode. (laughs) I want to, I want to recommend some reading too. Martin Luther King's work on, um, on Jesus. I mean, he, people forget his memory is very sanitized and, and whitewashed in a very real sense, but people forget that he was very much a theologian. Um, but mm. his work on, on, uh, Jesus death and civil action is really incredible. So I recommend reading up on him on his, his work in particular. Probably my, the most influential work for me as far as moving away from what we've talked about. Was and, that book? and James and James Cone, oh, the cross cool. and the lynching tree is another one. It's very good. Yeah. It's very um, All right. Well, let us know what you think. If you have anything to add to this specific conversation, or again, you want just the terms, you can check that out at irenacast.com slash 59. That's irenacast.com slash 59. And then as usual, and I, we don't really just say this to say it, but anytime you have suggestions for um, the show, whether it's questions, comments, or concerns, we are always welcome to hear from you at irenacast.com slash feedback. We were having a, a conversation before this conversation about how people have told us that in the show we say something interesting and then we move past it. We want to know what's interesting to you. So give us that information so that we can form an episode or a part of an episode around those issues. So with all that being said, on the other side of the music, we are going to be bringing back our segment called Sword of Scategories. Sort of categories. This is actually the third time we're going to be playing this game. We did it in episode 16 and episode 45. And how this is going to work is that each of us has a category, and then we will attach a letter to that category. And the other two hosts have to go back and forth, coming up with an answer until one of them can no longer do so. Yes. And I feel like like I categories. I have to mention this again. I mentioned it in episode 16. This game. No, you mentioned it in every episode so far. (laughs) Just so you know. Because it makes me angry. It brings out the devil in me. No other game on the planet will do this. 
Okay. You could slap okay, me in for, the face. For our I'm avid totally listeners, fine. I promise we do not have a script for this <laughs> thing. Because, Alan, you've said, like, I even acknowledge that the last time I did this game is that you've said that. I have to say so, it. It's my, it's my grand caveat for categories you know, or sort of you, categories. You talk big, man, but angry. I have yet to see the devil, and I've been waiting to see the devil in you. <laughs> <laughs> and last time you were like, oh, oh I'm going to get all competitive. But oh, you, were like, you were like mildly more competitive than normal. So <laughs> I'm waiting for is, you I get to bring angry. it. Because people, uh, people sin against the. I love categories. Love things being, you know, isms and stuff like that. And when someone <laughs> says something is in a category when it isn't, and everybody's Who nodding their heads, that? it Who drives says me I nuts. Love categories. First of all, yeah, <laughs> and feelings <laughs> right, at the well, same let's... time. Anyway, all right. Who is first? I'll go first. Okay. Wait, I said that, but I actually don't have an idea yet. So someone else go first. I just okay. wanted oh to go. Goodness. I just wanted to volunteer. Ready? Alan, why don't you go first? You were super prepared for this episode, right? Super yeah. prepared. Because I'm uh, r- really angry with this, I wanted to make sure <clears throat> that I got it straight before starting. So I actually have two options. One's like the normal category, sort of categories, and one's like the sort of sort of categories that I'm really excited about. So um, I don't know I'll what that do... means, but let's continue. It means this. It means this. <laughs> Instead of giving me, usually you'd say like a medication that starts with A or something like that, and yeah, you guys yeah. go back and forth. I am going to change things up even further uh, because I hate this game and love it at the same time. You have to come up with a phrase, an idiom, like a, a, a phrase that has special meaning with containing the word apple. No. That's yes. not the game. That's try terrible. it. No. Just try I'm not it. That's no. In that. That's no, not the game. I'm no. serious. Now, now you're trying to it's flip the, the script. It's That's the not the greatest. It's the it's the greatest thing ever. Just try it. Then well, you play. What's it. No, we'll, the word we can make that a whole yourself. separate game. But that's not how we prepare for this oh game. That's not, that's how we not That's not right. Like that's messed up. An apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You have two non-participants playing your invisible game. All right. So here you go. Here's my other one. All right. Then we forfeit your turn, Alan. You have to play because you know we wouldn't go. You tell me. <laughs> I'm caught. Yes. Okay. I didn't want to go first because I wanted to sneak this in. Totally it's so fun. <laughs> My wife and I in the car do this. I make her play all the time. I say, what's an idiom that starts the letter C? And then we go, all that in a bag of or what the word chips. All that in a bag of chips. Chip off the old block. Blah blah blah. Anyway. My thing is this. Alcoholic beverages that start with the letter B. And this can be any uh, boy. alcoholic company. Yeah, B is okay. a boy. Any Budweiser. alcoholic company, any, <laughs> any type of alcoholic drink or mixed drink. So there you go. You got Budweiser. Is that? Okay. So brands count? Yeah. And basically, I'm trying to find out which one of you is not, you know, the Irenicast alcoholic. Oh, I see. My- this is the alcohol <laughs> witch hunt. Thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, okay well well okay so if i say beer um i guess that's fine but that <laughs> specific stuff is that's fine dude whatever you want yeah beer works all right beer that's all i drink and bacardi stuff. Ooh. uh baileys buttery nipple is a drink hey that that's actually order. yeah hey the guy who uh the guy who does our music on our intro that's uh, listed, Mike. He actually taught me what a buttery nipple was, and that sounds really weird saying it out loud. Right. <laughs> the drink or something else? Because I'm pretty sure it's <laughs> the drink. Else You're also. supposed to order that at the end of the night. It's nice. It's okay. soothing. Yeah. I'm sure Wait, it was is. Like, it supposed to be family friendly? I don't. It's an actual we name just... of a drink. 
It is. I don't know. Come on, Barfly me... Jeff. You got this. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't know if this is real, but I'm just guessing because I've heard that it has other flavors, but butterscotch schnapps. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that exist? Yeah, that's the thing. Yep. Yeah. All right. Actually, I, I think that's actually in a buttery nipple, just so you know. Oh, that's nice. amazing. There is a cider company that I love called Bantam Cider. Oh, okay. Never heard of that. We can play that. There you go. Um, Yeah, dude, you know all this like craft brews and stuff, Jeff. You know all these beers everywhere? Yeah. So, okay, so you can do companies. Well, I'm going to say Bear Republic. Mm -hmm. Bordeaux. Bomb, comma, Irish car. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm going to take the wood away from you for that. <laughs> um, no. I don't know. I'm done. Okay. Okay. The the winner of most alcoholic drinks named Moda. This is a hollow victory. I'm not sure why. Uh, that was my whole... That, that was my That's because program. you had to listen to Alan say buttery nipple. <laughs> More than once. Yeah. I, think. Uh, I did, didn't I? Yeah, that's Buttery a great drink, though. Nipple. It really is. What's in it, actually? Butterscotch uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bailey's or something. I'm pretty sure it's like that's nasty. Kahlua or it's something. Like candy. It's, it's it's like can It's but it's it's like Werther's like originals. It's like melted, if you candied a nipple. Mona, are you ready? Why don't you go next, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so my category is things you would find in a junk drawer. Oh, dang. And my and letter this is, is a regular junk drawer, Mona, not Yeah. Not I'm, already, I'm already you can't say like, You guys don't even I'm want to know it's upset. in my junk drawer. Uh. <laughs> yeah, last time we last time one of the categories was like family games and you were just saying like random things that no one in the world plays except You're for like, apparently like hop family. on your left foot. I have foot. no recollection. Like, <laughs> okay. So things you find in a junk drawer and the letter is S. Scissors. Okay. Scotch tape. Okay. Screwdriver. Screws. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. Does a stylus work? Yeah. Because there's like lots of stylus. I have styluses. Styluses. In your junk drawer? Yeah, I really? do. Really? Jeff says yes, he's the sole arbiter. Actually, I just That's found an old stylus in my junk drawer, Ooh. so that totally works. <laughs> Scrap paper. Mine will be stamps. Sizable markers. The big kind, bad kind. Are you saying Sharpie markers? Yeah, Sharpie markers. No, she didn't say Sharper. She said said sizable. No, I said Sharpie, actually. No. I think that's what she meant. (laughs) Don't help her out. (laughs) See, you're just, you guys are doing this to make me angry. I knew it would happen. That's, you Listen, can't say this sizable. Is, so far, I, so far, this is the longest round like, we've ever had. Like it's gone back and forth. I don't want to ruin the momentum, so I took it as sharpie. You so could Alan, say sizable markers could be like uh, I don't know any kind a of color that starts that normal, with S. Big yes. as a normal size. Oh, a small marker. That's mine. <laughs> I mean, like it's the exact same thing. I'm gonna say a skinny can, marker. Can I say <laughs> a sketchy? Uh, <laughs> Marker that looks uh, weird. I mean, like, no pun intended. Is, is it the mm, more pun is the sketch? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Clean slate. I'm gonna Alan go with go. a stapler. She oh. has to go. Stapler. stapler. Okay. Good. Go. Stapler. That's good. Stapler. Staples. 
You bastard. <laughs> uh, sneaky, sneaky. I'm done. It's 11.52 here, p.m., Spools. and I my brain is shutting off. There you go. <laughs> That's the latest we've ever recorded, right? Yeah, this is not spools our normal of, recording uh, time. <laughs> I would say spools of... of um, spools? <laughs> what are you on the age of string. You are string. You are you string. Your own spools socks? of string. Storage string. lids. Okay, dang it. To like little storage All right, containers. Alan, you are the winner. Mona, yeah, do you have one? Fine. I know junk, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently you got your I know alcohol, you know Jeff. Yeah. Let's see what Jeff knows. Let's, let's see what Jeff knows. What is it, Mona? Okay. We're gonna go with global corporations that start with the letter D. Fictional or real ones? Uh, what fictional? What you could just make up anything. Of course real. Delta, okay. the airline. Okay. Because that's like global, right? They fly to other places. I don't know anything about It's super about global. global yeah, I don't know if Delta's a corporation. It has to be. Yeah, it's definitely a corporation. Delta. We'll mm. say companies. We'll say companies because, you know, we're going to argue about the corporations. Global companies, though, right? Global companies. Global companies start with the letter D. Dunkin' Donuts. Is it global, though? <laughs> that's going to be every answer. Is it global, though? Dang it. Okay. It we'll global? just say Dutch okay. Bros. Is it global, though? Revision. <laughs> Large companies. That's start with the letter D. Okay, thank you. All right. Dutch Sizable properties. companies. This is going to take forever. Is it? Let's try it. Well, okay. actually, I don't know very Quick. many companies, so actually that won't happen. It won't take very long. You're such a humanitarian. No. <laughs> I'm okay, what, what you you even uninformed. Yeah. I said Dutch Brothers, the coffee. Okay. All right, there's there's gonna be a theme in mind. Del Taco. Me too. Domino's. See, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. Not good at all. Um, just do a restaurant. We should do fast food chains. That would be enough. <laughs> Dave and Buster's. <laughs> that doesn't even remotely count. I was gonna say Denny's, and that counts as uh, fast food more than David Buster's, dude. No, we're not doing fast food. Oh, okay, Denny's. That was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid! You can't just assign. I feel like I feel like we're. You can't just change see, the game. <clears throat> hey, no. See, once once you give up on the atonement, you just go into all the vices. That's it. Alcohol. All the vices. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, all the possible hoarding, venues for sin, like junk. Yeah, a bunch sin. of restaurants. So you said Denny's. Denny's. Um, I don't know. I was gonna make something up and be emphatic that it was real, but I don't have <laughs> the energy. I can't think of any others. Oh, Dickies. <laughs> Yay. Is that a restaurant? This game is count? really dumb. Yeah, it's a restaurant. All right. Well, this is. <laughs> I know food and I know junk. And I it's feel bad about myself. It's a closing company. Dickies. So... Closing. It's sporting oh, goods yeah. and It's also a barbecue a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That'll do it for us this week. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. If you've already done that, you can go to irenacast.com slash support for even more ways to show your love for the show. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I am Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. Man, that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing I have a few days to edit that one. Or everyone hit stop.